For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. Tonight's chant, um, at the request of our speaker, Nyozan, will be the Song of the Grass Hunt. So I will pull that up and we can get started. Uh, we will be starting with the repentance verse. Um, you haven't joined us since we started doing that. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. <clears throat> Song of the Grasshopper. I've built a grass hut where there's nothing of value. After eating, I relax and enjoy a nap. When it was completed, fresh weeds appeared. Now it's been lived in, covered by weeds. The person in the hut lives here calmly, not stuck to inside, outside, or in between. Places worldly people live, he doesn't live. Realms worldly people love, she doesn't love. Though the hut is small, it includes the entire world. In ten feet square, an old man illumines forms in their nature. A Mahayana Bodhisattva trusts without doubt. The middling or lowly can't help wondering, will this hut perish or not? Perishable or not, the original master is present. Not dwelling south or north, east or west. Firmly based on steadiness, it can't be surpassed. A shining window below the green pines. Jade palaces or vermilion towers can't compare with it. Just sitting with head covered, all things are at rest. Thus, this mountain monk doesn't understand it all. Living here, he works to get free. Who would proudly arrange seats trying to entice guests? Turn around the light to shine within, then just return. The vast inconceivable source can't be faced or turned away from. Meet the ancestral teachers, be familiar with their instructions. Bind grasses to build a hut and don't give up. Let go of hundreds of years and relax completely. Open your hands and walk innocent. Thousands of words, myriad interpretations are only to free you from obstructions. If you want to know the undying person in the hut, 
Don't separate from the skin bag here and now. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the song of the grass hut. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Maha Prajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogako Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time. All honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, mahaprajna paramita. Uh, good evening, everybody. Um, I guess I'll just dive in. Uh, I don't know. I'm on a phone, so I don't see everybody at once. I don't know who's all here, whether you all know me. Uh, my name is Nyozan. I'm uh, one of the priests with Ancient Dragon. Um, <clears throat> tonight, with some trepidation, um, I'm going to speak a little bit about um, something that Junryu Suzuki Roshi said. I say with trepidation because I'm aware of doing so in the presence of somebody attending tonight who actually knew the man, which I did not. Um, I realized I was, I'm going to be talking about Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, um, a section from there. Um, and I hope that I will, I, even though my voice will be different, that I'll be true to the spirit of the man somehow. Because even though I did not know him, uh, he uh, has played this huge role in my life. Um, I've met him only in dreams. Um, and there's a, there is a dreamlike quality, uh, you know, to, the, to how I receive him through the mediation of these highly edited things like Zen mind, beginner's mind. Um, he, he strikes me as he's not a real sort of discursive kind of guy. Um, he doesn't really explain things. He sort of expresses himself and then you work with it. 
excuse me, I have some flies here. Um, it's like uh, it's got a. It's it seems like he has this very light touch in the way he presents teachings. And uh, the image I came up with today is like um, sprinkling sort of this Dharma dust around. And every once in a while, you know, there's this stuff floating around and I might sort of inhale this little moat or something. And then it's there, it's lodged. And then, you know, I might not even be aware of it, but it's kind of, churning and churning and churning, just a word or a phrase sometimes. And then years later, you know, I realized there's this, there's this thing and I have to take it out and look at it and say, well, what, what is this? Um, What is being said here? And it's one of those things I'm going to be talking about tonight. Um, It's the expression that appears. um, He says something about um, our practice, Zen practice, specifically Soto Zen practice, he says, um, being, what does he say? Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. And that's what I want to explore a little bit today. Um, I'm going to start, though, with another one of these things that has lodged in me and has informed my practice for many years. And I hope the logic of introducing the topic this way will become a little bit self-evident. It's this. When we inhale, the air comes into our inner world. When we exhale, the air goes out into the outer world. The inner world is limitless, and the outer world is also limitless. We say inner world and outer world, but actually there is just one whole world. And of course, that's our experience. And, you know, we we can divide it up this way, but we inhabit one whole world, whether we wholly inhabit it, wholeheartedly inhabit it or not. Um, And what I want to talk about here is that there is always really for us just one whole practice. But just as we divide our one whole experiential world into inner and outer, we also can talk about different aspects of this one whole practice. And this is really true whether we are Zen practitioners or Theravadan practitioners or Tibetan practitioners. It's just kind of a... Because... Well, I won't go there. It's just, it's just one whole thing. We have one practice, and that we can talk about it in different ways. In Mahayana approaches, of which Zen is one, one of the ways in which this has happened over time is to talk about Hinayana and Mahayana aspects of our practice, or even Hinayana and Mahayana as different practices, and even sometimes... um, in such a way, in some of the sutras, that that one is inferior and one is superior. Um, I'll give you know I'll touch on some examples of this a little bit later. Um, but Suzuki Roshi does this as well in Zen Bind Beginner's Mind in a section called Negative and Positive. And it's here that he describes Soto the Soto way as Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. 
Um, here's a complete uh, quotation. The Soto way always has a double meaning, positive and negative. Our way is both Hinayanaistic and Mahayanaistic. I always say our practice is very Hinayanaistic. Actually, we have Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. Rigid, formal practice with informal mind. These words, like so many in the books, have just sort of echoed with me forever. And they've stayed with me for years without ever really resolving, or I've never even felt a need to resolve them into any sort of determinate meaning. Even so, I sense that they've really informed my practice and my understanding. But, you know, so maybe it's time now that I'm talking about it to, to sort of ask myself, well, what does he mean by these words? What could they possibly mean for me? And um, for better or worse, Suzuki Roshi himself is not so helpful in this regard, at least not in this section. It seems to be one of those very generative passing remarks that he makes while he's talking about something else. The chapter is positive and negative. And I should say here, positive and negative, uh, don't take that as don't take the negative as negative. What he's really talking about polarity. And I think if you look at that section, he's really sort of talking, he's maybe himself thinking about the line in Gensho Khan where Dogen says, when one side is illuminated, the other side of dark, because he's talking about these sort of this, this quality of Dharma that makes it um, impossible to talk about the whole, I mean, he says this quite explicitly, you can't, that is actually impossible to talk about the, the different aspects of a practice together. You can just kind of practice it together. Um, but anyway, so I want to be clear that when he's talking about the negative side of our practice, don't take that as to be, it's, it's sort of a negative pull of our practice. It's a polarity, an aspect of our practice, not a, like a bad thing. Um, So, yeah, that's the real thrust of this chapter. It's about the difficulty of sharing Dharma verbally at all. And that what he calls big mind is not something you've heard this before. It's not something we need to seek, but something we already have, something we need to express. And further in this section, he says that when we have Mahayana mind, there is neither Hinayana or Mahayana practice. As I said, we just have one whole practice, but Still, it's useful to poke at these terms a little bit, I think. What what does he mean by Hinayana and Mahayana here? The first thing to say about Hinayana is that the term itself can be, and often is, kind of a pejorative. Um, It's actually um, probably wouldn't be too politically correct to use it this way. Uh, It can and has been used sometimes to dismiss some approaches to practice, some schools of practice as selfish, too oriented um, towards individual liberation, we could say. And there's truth to that. There's some resonance there, but we need to be careful. And when it's done this way, as opposed to our practice, bodhisattva practice, which understands itself to be aiming for complete liberation and the liberation of all beings. In other words, um, 
it's not, it, 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 it sort of supersedes and, um, takes a broader view than just, you know, practices, something we do exclusively for ourselves. And, um, the really deep irony here, of course, is that almost all of us are Hinayanist in this sense, in this negative sense. And almost all of, quote unquote, Mahayana practice is Hinayana practice, at least when we start. You know, we, we have this idea that we're going to get something out of it. Uh, the practice of our practice, at least in Zen, is to kind of shake ourselves with this idea um, that that what this is all about is strengthening and bolstering what we might call the small self, the ego self, uh, so on and so forth. The question is, you know, how do we actually go about doing this? You know, some of the um, Mahayana sutras use the term kind of self Hinayana somewhat self-servingly to mean simply those Buddhists who not accept the authority of the Mahayana sutras. And from there, it's pretty, it's a pretty easy slide to identify it with the Theravada as one of the many non-historical Mahayana schools that once existed. It's the only one to have survived into the present, but this kind of an identification, I want to distance myself from that. That's, that's not what I don't think really Suzuki Roshi is probably intending here. Um, and, and yeah, I, I just don't think that's the right way to be thinking about it, this context. So what does he have in mind when he's talking about Hinayana practice? He connects the idea um, with what he calls formal practice, which he then also connects to uh, and both the precepts and to practicing, quote, Zazen every morning in the same way. It's interesting that in this context, though, he's, this is all he says about Zazen. It's the only time he's meant, he mentions it. Um, um, but he does say quite a bit more about precept practice. Um, in any case, it seems that he is taking everything that we customarily think of as our practice, sitting, precepts, all of this as given, but is suggesting that it has to be done, it has to be approached in a particular kind of way. And he doesn't use this word exactly, but I think what he means is kind of a big-hearted, expansive, big-mind kind of way, if we can put it in those terms. Um, He says here some things that I find really, really challenging. He says, quote, we say that observing the precepts in a Hinayana way, formally, uh, and so on, is violating the precepts in a Mahayana way. And as long as you have Mahayana mind, quote, even though it seems as if you are violating the precepts, you are actually observing them in the true sense. Now, I, I note this because I'd be interested what other people think when they've thought about this or when they've reread the chapter or whatever. My feeling is, um, I don't know if it's a function of, of the editing or whatever, um, 
you know, or a function of the fact that, you know, Suzuki Roshi is talking about this Hinayana Mahayana polarity um, in the context of this bigger thing about negative, positive, or so on. Uh, but I think that even though these words might be true, they are also potentially quite dangerous. Um, and so I find it very interesting that he, you know, that are just kind of mentioned here in passing. You know, why do I say this? And it's, be, it's because we've all, I think, witnessed this really sad spectacle of students and even more egregiously respected teachers or once respected teachers who seem to have gone awry in their understanding of this kind of a teaching. And so rather than receiving it as a way to arouse a spirit that goes beyond sort of overly literal or dogmatic dogmatic or small-hearted or gain-seeking self-building approaches to preset practice, they have instead become infatuated, perhaps, I don't know what it is, with their own understandings of emptiness or realization or liberation or whatever it is in such ways that uh, the ways they actually wind up moving through the world become actually completely indistinguishable from the way of those who have completely left their own greed, hate, and delusion undisturbed, unexplored. Um, that is, people who have not undertaken practice at all, right? Um, you know, and, and so it's a, sort of a sad or melancholy truth that we have sometimes learned. You know, it's quite natural in a way, but sometimes we've learned as much from the failures of teachers as from their own good example. It's, it's hard. Suzuki Roshi says... And, and I think this is actually the thrust of the this weird passage, that if you observe the precepts in just a formal way, you lose what he calls Mahayana spirit. And to quote him again, he says, before you understand this point, you always have a problem, whether you should observe our way literally or whether you should not concern yourself about the formality which we have. But if you understand our way completely, there is no such problem. Now, he goes on to say here, there's no such problem because whatever you do is practice. If I may be so bold, I think it might have been more helpful here to say something, especially in the context of this chapter, to say something like, because you will realize that both of these approaches are one-sided and incomplete. Uh, and, and why is that? Because they, um, in some way, do not uh, take us outside of the realm of practicing with gaining idea. That'd be one way to say it. To say that whatever you do is practice, um, Well, it may be true in some sense, might itself lead to the, the same misunderstanding that he's flagging here. 
The other points in the direction of approaching the precepts, a way of approaching the precepts that is a middle way sort of way um, that is neither like small minded or puritanical or self-regarding, nor does it exempt one from taking the precepts seriously at all on the basis of some kind of self-regarding Mahayana quote unquote understanding. There are formulations from the broader Mahayana tradition uh, that might be somewhat helpful here. Um, uh, they're different than the way things are presented in Zen, but when we're trying to uh, conceptualize the relationship of um, Hinayana or Mahayana, or the relationship of practicing with the precepts to our Zazen, um, any of those kinds of things, they, they might be a bit informative. Um, so, for example, there are some, Mahaya, uh, some Vajrayana tantric traditions that speak of a three-vehicle approach. They use the terms Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, or Tantra. In this scheme, it's kind of a schema, the Hinayana sometimes is talked about as the vehicle of individual liberation, and it involves teachings of, for example, the three marks of existence, um, uh, which I think you all know, or the Four Noble Truths, which of course uh, includes the precepts. And in this view, it is precisely through the practice of these that one is disabused of the notion of some kind of fixed, non-co-arising self. Um, in short, in a sense, it's not liberation of the self, of and for the self, uh, but liberation from the self. And this self is, is seen as opening up into the Mahayana vision of the Bodhisattva path of compassion and emptiness and so on. That is, you know, understanding the dependent core, understanding dependent core arising. And in this framework, the Bodhisattva path can then deepen into the Vajrayana. Um, I don't want to say a lot about that here um, because I don't really understand a lot. You know, I'm not qualified to speak of it, but um, one thing, you know, sometimes that path is talked about as the path of skillful means, the path of um, uh, treating all phenomena that arise as um, sort of fuel for the path, fuel for the liberation of all beings. And in that sense, you know, it kind of, I think, dovetails in a way with um, some of the, what we've been talking about lately about um, appropriate response and so on. I don't think that there, I think there's a lot of commonality in other words. Um, but the point is that even though this is presented in a, in a gradual or graduated kind of way, you know, um, quite unlike how we speak about these things in Zen, uh, it does point to the way that um, 
these two aspects of the path, Hinayana and Mahayana, actually are dependent on one another. Or at least the Mahayana understanding grows out of in this view and is dependent on the on the path of individual liberation, the path of uh, attending to one's own read, hate, delusion, with the doing of which, of course, is part of that is through the practice of precepts. So that's how we uh, uh, that's how we go out into the world in Buddhist practice. Something like this is maybe even a little more clear in what we sometimes speak of as the turnings of the wheel of Dharma. Uh, in these kinds of schemas, uh, the first turning again are um, understood to be the earliest strata of Buddhist teaching. So again, the teachings of the Four Noble Truth, the Eightfold Path is part of that, the three marks of existence, and so on. The second turning is the turning of the Prajnaparamita Sutras, uh, the teachings of emptiness and bodhisattva compassion, the emphasis of awakening in this world as opposed to uh, a vision of sort of escaping into this sort of self-protective nirvana. Now, this, this, this sort of three turnings of the wheel sort of notion was first developed in the Yogacharan tradition, but it was taken over by lots of different groups. And so the, so of course with the Yogacharya, the, the, the third turning of the wheel was the Yogacharya teachings. But for example, with the Yan school, it was the Tathagata teachings, et cetera, et cetera. Um, uh, there are several, the Tentai school has the same kind of idea. Um, uh, broken down into sort of five different things. It doesn't matter. The point is that as the Dharma wheel turns, as we explore it and we roll around in it, um, the implications of the teachings unfold in ever deeper and richer ways. These ways of talking about things um, they, they are their ways of talking about things and they share the, we might say, expedient means of temporalizing things, putting things as happening developmentally over time. So in the first case, it does so in terms of, we might say, biography, the development of the practice of an individual practitioner. Uh, they start with the path of individual liberation, move into sort of my understandings and then perhaps move into a different kind of understanding. And then in the second case, it does so in terms of a quasi-historical sequence of how the Buddhist teachings were presented and assimilated. And, you know, doing it, these, putting it these ways, of course, completely, you know, appropriate to sort of gradualist understandings of Dharma practice. But they don't make obvious sense in sort of non-gradual, sudden practice. They don't make a lot of sense in the Zen context. But the wheel-turning picture, in particular, does bring us closer to Zen in the understanding that it's the turning, as the wheel of Dharma turns, it unspools 
what was there all along, right? Um, so I guess what I'm trying to say here is that, you know, both these gradualist ways of describing things point us in the direction of realizing, yes, uh, what we might call this one aspect of the practice, the narrow sort of more personal aspect of practice becomes the condition for um, for Mahayana practice. What it misses is the Zen understanding that while that is true, it's also true that the Mahayana understanding of emptiness and compassion likewise becomes the condition for the sort of narrower development that we have as people in the Hinayana practice. In other words, the Zen, I think, expression does much better at sort of um, pointing out that these aspects of practice are co-determining and they co-arise. Um, one's not before, there's no before or after here, actually. And I think this is kind of partly what Suzuki Roshi is talking about with Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. However we talk about it, being Zen students will always involve, to quote Suzuki Roshi, rigid formal practice with informal mind. Whether we are totally together or totally messed up, whether our understanding is vast or small, our way of practice will always involve, one, placing ourselves on a cushion regularly, um, and it will involve trying to live or be lived by the precepts. Recently, I heard somebody describe Buddhist practice in general, not Zen practice per se, but I would say inclusive of Zen practice. As Zen practice or Buddhist practice is a process of pulling your head out of your own ass so that you can get a better, broader, truer view of yourself and the world. The emphasis that this gentleman was making was, you know, not that we'll ever necessarily have a perfect view of the world. We will have a better, a broader a truer view of the world, and therefore um, a kinder, softer, more compassionate view of the world. Now, I ask you to excuse the expression, you know, pull your head out of your ass. It's really crude, um, kind of ugly. But when I think about it, there really is no better one that quite conveys the idea as well, you know, because it's an image of a particular kind of self-involved, closed off, self-referential, narcissistic way, narcissistic way of relating to things and both to ourselves and, and to things in the world. And it's precisely this kind of cramped misunderstanding of what it is to be a person, what selfhood it is, what it is to be a human being, that in some sense is at the root of the, um, what we might want to sort of mitigate or overcome 
or maybe we should, we should just say work with in practice. And if we think about it that way, you know, we, we can think about not only Zazen, but the precepts itself as these ways that, you know, we take the backward step of Zazen and then we take the outward step into the world and we have to relate with per- people and things. Um, and through uh, the guidance of the precepts, we can do so in ways that undercut and disrupt this kind of, you know, narcissistic understanding of self ultimately that then makes, um, uh, for example, our desires be expressed in such a way that they become poisonous and our understandings of the world to become toxic and so on and so forth. Um, Precepts can, can undercut and disrupt all that, I think, but not necessarily. We can do this, what Suzuki Roshi calls Hinayana practice in a very Hinayana way, precisely the way I was talking about before. This is what is happening when we think we can fix ourselves, we can fix the world so that it'll better suit us, that we can find some truer or better self, or that there's something that we have to achieve before we can take ourselves to the more supposedly serious business of sitting down on a cushion. Because we get this attitude, you know, it, we, we, we see this attitude expressed, we have the feeling ourselves, and we see certain schools of Buddhism espouse it. You know, it's like, okay, you know, the meditations for the hot shots, you know, the precepts are for the people who can't, like, you know, get that together or whatever, um, you know, that kind of thinking. But that's all, I think that's wrong. Um, and part of what's wrong about it is that it leaves that, one way or the other, it leaves that whole unwholesome circuit of contorted self-attachment completely in place. Uh, there's no way to break that circuit, right? But it doesn't have to be this way. Um, to use Dogen's phrase, precepts are one of the ways in which we can study ourselves. We can see how we actually appear by holding those, you know, not not necessarily succeeding in them always, by no means, but by having the precepts in their very broadest sense be part of how we uh, move through the world. We study ourselves. We, we become familiar with our patterns of, you know, passion, aggression, ignorance, all those things. And we can both um, come to see more clearly or can, can question more acutely the appropriateness of those responses. And we can see more clearly the effects of um, sort of unrestrained, completely self-referential ways of being in the world, uh, you know, the effects of that both on ourselves 
This is karma. It's not a good effect, typically. Um, uh, and the effects on other people, right? Um, but when Dogen, as I'm sure you all know, when he goes, when he talks about uh, studying ourselves, right? He goes on to say that to study ourselves is to forget ourselves and that to forget ourselves is to uh, awaken together, be awakened by the 10,000 things, by all phenomena, everything that we encounter. This is, this is where there's a kind of a, a resonance with that sort of skillful means level of the Vajrayana, right? Um, it's where everything we experience can become entry into Dharma. Um, and this is the Mahayana way, right? Um, and we can say, and there might be a certain amount of psychological truth to say, this happens, and then this happens, and then this happens, that we study ourselves, and then after we study ourselves, or in the process of studying ourselves, then we can forget ourselves, and then when we forget ourselves, then we can be awakened with or by the 10,000 things. Um, but I think the understanding that's kind of in the, in the shadows here of, of what Suzuki Roshi is talking about in this passage or, or what Dogen's talking about in this very famous passage from Genjo Khan is that it's happening, uh, that it's actually all happening at the same time all the time, that the process of studying self, the self is not preliminary to forgetting the self. That's the same process talked about in, to go back to this chapter, uh, as a kind of polarity that can't be fully expressed at once, but it's the same thing. And therefore, whatever we, because it's polarity, um, we can't ever quite say it right. The words will never be quite right. Uh, but we can come to understand that to study ourselves and to forget ourselves and to be awakened, it's all the same unfolding. There's no prior. There's no after necessarily. Um, and of course, this is difficult, right? Because we do. We do grow in practice and sort of sort of art, how to articulate that relationship is is really difficult. And as Suzuki Roshi acknowledges in this chapter, it's impossible, frankly. Um, but only only at the level of talking about it It's not impossible in the in the realm of, of, of actually living it. Um, yeah. Early in Zen. Mind beginner's mind, Suzuki Roshi says something to the effect that the forms of Zen practice are not the means of obtaining the right state of mind. He says of, of Zazen specifically that to take this posture is in itself to have the right state of mind. There is no need to obtain some special state of mind. And I think that when we talk about the precepts, And as Suzuki Roshi talks about the precepts just in passing in this section, um, 
there's something very like this, right? Um, often when we talk about the precepts, we talk in terms like working on ourselves. And there's truth here, right? Um, but this is a good example. It's another wonderful expression of Suzuki Roshi's, this, this idea that um, the world is perfect or you are perfect as it is or as, you know, the, let's just put it in terms of a person. The world, you are perfect as you are, but you could use some work, right? This is a, at the level of language, the level of thought. It's complete paradox. You cannot resolve those two ideas. But they don't have to be resolved in the realm of ideas. They're resolved in in practice very clearly. So that when we talk about, we can say uh, that in practicing the precepts, in a sense, we are working on ourselves. And this is a side of, obviously, you could use some work. Um, There's truth here, but it's a truth that at best can be expressed verbally, only partially. And because of this, we might be deluded into thinking that there is some special kind of self, maybe, perhaps a new and improved self, one that might be achieved through the precepts, and that then we can get down to the serious business of zazen. Or we might be deluded into thinking that because our zazen is so deep, or our realization is so complete, that we don't really have to worry about the precepts, quote unquote, in the formal sense. But these, I think, these both go off the mark. Um, living out the precepts, right, or letting our lives live themselves out in the mode of the precepts is in itself an expression of big mind or awakened mind, however we want to put that working on ourselves doesn't necessarily need to mean working only on ourselves. It is also the process of saving all beings. They're not two distinct things. And to think about, you know, as we say, saving all beings is not really different um, fundamentally than working on ourselves. The process there, there are two sides, two poles, the negative and the positive of one single thing. And to conclude, you know, maybe just, you know, and I really mean this, maybe uh, this, because I don't know, maybe this is part of what Suzuki Roshi is getting at when he talks about uh, Hinayana practice with Mahayana spirit. So I'll leave it there. Um, there are lots of loose ends in there. I'm not a clear thinker um, or speaker. Um, so at this point, I will welcome any um, corrections, adjustments, anything like that. And uh, if there are questions, we can even, somebody can raise them. And hopefully somebody in the group will be able to answer them. So thank you. You're, you're muted. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much. I, I think you did a wonderful job of presenting Zuccaroche's understanding. I like thank the you. idea of the of the Dharma dust being sprinkled on things. It's true. Uh, it's very true. He, he would 
things that he would say. He was very understated and and uh, very, very, very indirect. He, he never, he did not try to spell it out for you. He, he left little, 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 little mind bombs of things for you to think on uh, all over the place. But I think you also zeroed in on the really the big problem of, of Buddhism in America. Because we're in America, we don't have a tradition of, you know, that we haven't, it's, it's new here. It has it, we don't have a tradition that gives us some way of, of understanding it. But we do have a tradition. We have two traditions here, especially in America. One is the children of Abraham. We have this, 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 you know, devil and God. We have the, we have it, the, 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 the Jews, the Christians, and the, and the, and the Muslims have this idea about a God who's, who's separate from man. And, and, um, and, and, ha- and there's a very sort of moral code. I mean, you can sin, you can, there's, there's, there's good and bad. And, and the precepts are kind of like that. The precepts are, are a code that you follow like that. It's easy for us to identify that kind of, that kind of understanding to the precepts. On the other hand, we have a very strong libertarian individualist streak in this country, where where everybody's you know I'm my own person, and uh, and it's you know and, and it's you get to strike out and find your own way, and and uh, <clears throat> whatever you know whatever you can grab, you should grab it fast because somebody else will grab it. <clears throat> so we have these two uh, two philosophical two mindsets in this country, maybe stronger than Europe and some other places. And, Certainly, certainly, it's different than Europe uh, than Asia. <clears throat> um, so, so we have to we have to find how to walk between those two those two ideas, because of the if we cling to the if we cling to the precepts, then we get then we get to a point where we're right and other guys are wrong, and, and you get into a dualistic thing there. But if you but if you say, well, it's all empty. But it's okay to color outside the lines. It doesn't matter if I color outside the lines, you know, because it's all empty. You get a, that, that creates also creates a great deal of problems. So, how to how to how to deal with that in a country in a culture where those two strains are very very prominent uh, is is I think is is the great question for us to to, to struggle with and. Um, I think you did a very good job of presenting that, and I thank you for it very much. And I thank you for for taking Suzuki Roshi's teaching so to heart, because you've done a beautiful job, and you're, I think you're, I think you present it very well. And uh, I thank you very much. I appreciate you. Be appreciative. Thank you. And Paul, I think uh, Nyozan's talk was very provocative, and what uh, Paul has just said really puts it into a context. And so, uh, other people, any re- reflections, responses, questions, comments, questions for Nyozan or Paul? Ed? Yeah, just briefly, and I've, I've, I know I've already thoroughly imposed my views regarding this chapter on others. However, <laughs> I, one thing that, and thank you, Eric, but one thing that Japan doesn't have that we have is Mel Brooks. And Mel Brooks <laughs> with this, is, we have other interpretations of our Judeo Christian heritage. I, I didn't hear what you said, Ed. Well, I'm you saying, don't... when I see the Buddhist precepts, I think of Mel Brooks and the 15 oh. commandments every time. Because 
in a, in a way, it's a manifestation of a state religion to me. So I think Buddhism probably in its history had some kind of state functions. And so it, it manifested forms that don't necessarily attend to practice as much to behavioral standards. And I'm not quite sure if there's an internal consistency necessarily between those two opposing structures within that faith practice. Certainly we have it in Catholicism, the same problem, tension. Well, I, I, you know, I think that's always, you know, with any sort of expression of religious practice, wherever um, you're going to get that kind of, of um, dichotomy. Um, and it's a slightly different one than, than what I was trying to present, but of course it's a huge, huge problem. I'll just add that I think within Buddhist history or East Asian Buddhist history, there are a variety of different uh, ways of uh, taking the Buddhist precepts or understanding Buddhist precepts, some very strict, and that fits in with what you were saying, Ed, and sometimes they, those did fit into, you know, government and institutional uh, uh, context, and, and then others more, um, you know, and, and more flexible and more in a practice realm. So it, it's a complicated topic historically anyway. And I, and I think, and I'll just add that I think uh, I appreciated the part of what you were saying is on about, you know, the flex the way of taking this in a flexible sense. And I think that's part of what we appreciate about Suzuki Roshi, that he wasn't nailing things down. He uh, had a gentle way of expressing things that, you know, we have to kind of, fine for ourselves, not just individually, you know, in terms of the individualism Paul was talking about, but, you know, as a song, as a culture. So I think the challenge that Paul posed us is uh, really relevant. Other comments or questions or responses? David Ray? Isan, thank you very much for that talk. I really appreciate it. Um, not sure how to frame this question, but it's, well, something like this. Um, would it, a, a thought that I might have had was, wow, I, I would have thought that Mahayana spirit would include whatever is meant by Hinayana practice. The, the thought that, um, yeah, just, just to leave it at that. I mean, it's, it's it's kind of a paradoxical expression, but but I would have thought, well, wow, why 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 add really the um, why add Hinayana practice? Does doesn't Mahayana spirit doesn't Mahayana spirit like inspire inspire someone to do um, rigorous um, rigorous painstaking practice? even though it's in the name of, of the, you know, of, of the great vehicle and everyone coming to liberation together. 
<clears throat> well, I think you're right. I mean, I think that Suzuki Roshi says that here, that there's a way in which um, Mahayana practice uh, necessarily includes both Hinayana and Mahayana practice, and that therefore within Mahayana practice, there is no Mahayana or Hinayana practice. Uh, but, you know, so it's a matter of, I don't want to say levels, but it's a matter of, of sort of register or something and, and how we talk about it. And, uh, you know, although what you say, I think is absolutely true. And we could say, put it in an injunctive way. We could say, yeah, Mahayana practice should be that way. Um, but in fact, a lot of what presents itself and, you know, I don't mean this is a criticism. It's a natural, it's, a, it's part of the way human beings are, right? A lot of what we think of as Mahayana practice, despite what we say, is very sort of narrow and self-regarding. A lot of, you know, I don't mean to sort of single anybody out, but sometimes it strikes me that, for example, the emphasis in Rinzai Zen on uh breaking through koans is kind of a narrow thing, isn't it? Um, it's, it becomes about kind of individual achievement and, and can, I think you can actually, for to use that as an example, you can go a long way, you know, in the curriculum or whatever and, and leave the basic sort of um, problem of self relatively intact i think i may be wrong here i don't you know i i say that with a great deal of uh diffidence but does that get to what you're talking about at all it does thank you i, I appreciate that okay. uh, thanks Jozan. i i appreciated the talk i especially liked something you said about how um these distinctions are are problems created by thought, but they, they are not complications we experience in the actual practice. And, and I think that Suzuki Roshi is really talking about Hinayana practice as a state of mind that even someone who practices within a Mahayana school could, could be involved with. I think part of it is sort of looking back at the historical practice and the ideas of the, of the, Indiana schools where non-dual schools where there's a certain idea of nirvana and and following the precepts and you know the, the practice of a Hinayana monk or would look very much like the practices of a Zen monk. You sit on the cushion a lot. You follow a whole lot of rules. You know there, there's a rule for everything. The distinction I think is that for a I think that what one of the things that Suzuki Roshi might be getting at, at is that for the Hinayana practitioner, this is the right way of living. And other ways of living are somehow defiled or not adequate. Um, they're deluded and they're leading me step by step. If I follow the, if I follow these rules, if I sit on this cushion, I'll go through stages of practice and I'll be enlightened someday. I'll become a Buddha and, I can even sort of look at it and measure. This is how far along I've got. This is good. This is bad. This is how far, how close to enlightenment I've gotten. 
And I think he, Suzuki Roshi would say, you know, would certainly say, um, yeah, we practice this way and we can certainly talk about delusion and enlightenment and the awakened life and so on. But as soon as you're thinking in those terms, you've lost it. You have to be able to sort of step aside and not get caught up in those, not identify with them and buy into those distinctions. And that's the fundamental, that and and I guess I'd say the Bodhisattva vow are sort of the distinction between later Mahayana practice and um, some of the approaches of early classical Buddhist schools in India. And yeah. I, I think, go ahead. Oh, no, I mean, I think that's true. And I, you know, I think that's relevant. And, um, you know, I, in my talk, I, you know, I myself introduced, you know, these other approaches to practice into the discussion. But I think it's really important here to recognize that Suzuki Roshi is not here talking about Hinayana, I don't think, in the sense of other schools. He's talking about it as um, a dimension of our own practice and, and our uh, be able, our, our not choice, but our, the possibility that we can, in our quote-unquote Mahayana Zen practice, approach that in a, the Hinayana aspect of our practice in a very Hinayana way. Um, whereas, in fact, there's an alternative um, available. Yeah. Um, you know, and there, and, you know, and again, there, there's, there is a, tr- there is truth, you know, like going back to these other schools, there is growth, there is development, um, uh, and so on. But it's always only going to be as all, as all things are, it's, however we put it, however we think about it, it's going to be a partial expression. It's inherent in the nature of thought, I think, and in the nature of language. And this is where I think, I think this story, in regard to what you said, the story that Zengyu has talked about a couple of times about the guys who turned up at, at Tassahara and the white sheets, right? And, uh, and the remark, you know, oh, go, those guys are pretty deluded. And Suzuki Roshi quite... Um, on the mark, sort of saying, yeah, they are, everybody is, you know, or some, I, I'm probably misquoting it, but something along those lines. Thank you. That, so that, of course, includes us always. Sure. So um, it's getting a little late. Is there anybody who has not spoken who wants to add something or respond? I, I saw that Wade had a question. Oh, Wade. Yeah, please. Um, well, just kind of on this on this topic, and maybe going back to what David was saying, that like, yeah, it does it does feel like this sort of Hinayana practice is wrapped up in Mahayana. But I think um, drawing on news on what you said about um, codependent arising is that like the reverse is true, right? Or or can certainly can be true. Like like Theravadan practice, I think will often have like a, or maybe ideally could have a Mahayana spirit to it. Right? I agree. That it, it's not like a, there are these personal and communal drives towards the salvation or liberation 
however you want to say that. And it's never just one or the other. It's always one for the other, right? Or one at the same time. And it's it's maybe just a matter of, as Nyozan, as you said, like register or or emphasis, but these things arise um, together. And to me, it seemed it made me think of like the relationship between something I've been thinking about a lot, the precepts and like uh, prajna teachings and how the two are, they seem maybe unrelated when you study them independently, but really they're, they're things that cause each other. Um, And you can't, you can't really, I mean, the, the metaphor of the magnet, the positive and negative that he's talking about, I think is a good one because you have to have both. There's no such thing as, is a magnet that's just positive or just negative, and the two of them together make one, one magnet. Like they make each other. No, I think that that I think that that, that that's right, and that's you know what I think um, seems to distinguish what Suzuki Roshi is presenting from the some other possible ways of thinking about these things it's not just that one you know it's this matter of dependent co-arising um you know the mahayana aspect of the practice is not only sort of preparation or undergirding for something else it 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 is the condition of the possibility in a sense of mahayana practice okay so far so good that's what a lot of other people have been saying, but I think part of Suzuki Roshi's insight is that the converse is also true, that the, the Mahayana dimension, the dimension of, of compassion and emptiness is also a condition of the possibility of this narrower kind of work that we need to be engaged in. They, as you say, I mean, they, it's a unity uh, that seems that, that seems to get disaggregated, but that but that's really a function of of speech, really, and 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 thought, um, not a function of practice itself, which constantly confronts us. I guess we could say with uh, the ineffability of it, the non graspability of it, the fact that it can't be comprehended in, in a way that we quite naturally want to do. I mean, I, w- I would look at the first paragraph of this chapter. Suzuki Roshi is really eloquent on this point. Thank you, Nyo-san. I, I think this is a really uh, subtle and, and uh, useful discussion. Um, I want to give the last word to Paul. Uh, just any further comments about this from your experience of Suzuki Roshi? I, um, I, I think it's all been said, but it's 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 um, he was he was a he was a wonderful teacher for us because he was able to exhibit that space that was neither he was not attached to he was not attached to the forms, but he was very but he followed the forms very very clearly. Um, I remember one of the one of the first sort of insights to that that I had was we would in the early days we would drive back and forth between San Francisco and and, and Tassajara and for some reason I was his driver that day and we were we were driving uh, 
down 101, down through this town town that used to be, there used to be a large Japanese congregation in San Jose, where Silicon Valley is now, that used to be farmers, farms, and, and Japanese farmers, and Japanese families, uh, immigrant families. And so some of the parishioners from the, the Sokoji, the Japanese congregation in San Francisco, lived there, and and one of them had a death in the family not too long ago, and you're supposed to chant every so many days and months, and, and anyway, there's a system of chanting that you do for the deceased. And so he, uh, as they were driving by, he said he wanted to stop and go to this parishioner's, this Japanese-American parishioner's house. And so we went in, and we went in, and they gave us tea, and we, said, and we went to the, to the family altar, and he started chanting. And I tried to, I followed along, you know, with the chanting with him. And then he sort of wandered off and, 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 and got lost in his place and started chanting something else. And, and got, he, got, he got it all wrong, basically. But, but he kept chanting just the same. And he, and, and, and he, he, he kept on chanting. He left out chunks. He added things. I mean, it was just, <laughs> I really, and, and, and the, 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 the widow was just ecstatically happy that he came and chanted. It was just, she was happy. The Buddha on the altar seemed to be happy. He didn't complain, and and I learned a great lesson is that it's 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 it was just a great lesson for me. Thank you. So with that, let's chant the four bodhisattva vows, and after that, we'll have announcements. Thank you very much, everyone, Yosan and Paul and everyone. So we'll chant the four bodhisattva vows three times.